When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus in biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases, RTPFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Bill Schott about his book, Bump, A Natural History of the Heart. In this lively, unexpected uh, look at the hearts of animals, from fish to bats to humans, American Museum of Natural History zoologist Bill Shutt tells an incredible story of evolution and scientific progress. Written with verve and authority, weaving evolutionary perspective with cultural history, Bump shows us the mysterious organ in a completely new light. Well, Bill, welcome to the show. Nice to be here. So as we're going through very tiring and... uh, times of the recent global pandemic, I was just wondering if you could start by reflecting on how has it affected you and your work, and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from this experience. That's a really good question. And to tell you the truth, I've, I've gotten, I've been involved in a lot of interviews with my book Pump, but that's the first time that question came up. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is that um not necessarily for the book Pump, but for the book that I'm writing now on on teeth. I'm not doing the traveling to laboratories and and interviewing people across the country uh, that I did, that I was still able to do when I I wrote Pump. But with regard to this book, um, I'm not going to book fairs. I I think I've been to one in-person presentation Whereas in the past, I was traveling all over the country, giving talks at libraries and clubs and, and, and book fairs, uh, being interviewed at radio stations. And, and that's just not, not happening anymore. Um, and I think it's, it's loosening up a little, just a little. But, um, you, you know, I, I really don't have anything planned right now. I have one conference that I'm a keynote speaker in April. Uh, but, um, you know, if this were some of my other books, it, it would have been, I would have been a lot more busy and, and traveling a lot more. And how did you find adjustment to mostly online meetings? Um, well, well, I taught for 22 years and when COVID hit, I, I coordinated and taught a, uh, a large course in, in human anatomy and physiology and, and we had spring break to bring that course online and um our our textbook manufacturer our, our textbook publisher rather 
put us in touch with uh, with a guy who was a Zoom expert, and he took us through and showed us the ropes. And by the time classes started up again, you know, we were you know we were we were fairly competent on Zoom, and and that's been you know that that's carried over um, to to things like interviews with with experts uh, that that I need uh, to gather information. So you already mentioned that you. Uh, taught physiology. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Um, I am born and raised in New York. I um, I grew up with parents who were hardworking middle class types. And, um, and I, I always had a love ever since I was a little kid uh, for animals and studying animals. I, I thought I wanted to be a, uh, a marine biologist when I was really little because I'd be watching uh, Jacques Cousteau on TV and, 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 and he sort of became my idol. Um, and so I always had a lot of strange pets back in those days. And uh, I, I mean, I was the kid, I was the only kid I knew that had a monkey. And, um, you know, I had snakes and lizards and every type of cool critter that you can imagine. And, and, and so my, and my, my parents were really, they were really kind and, and supportive of this uh, weird little kid that they'd had. Uh, I didn't have any brothers or sisters. And, um, so, so I studied biology in college as an undergrad, and then, uh, I did a master's degree and, and, and. About eight years after my master's degree, I'd been working in the pharmaceutical industry. I went back to school for my PhD at Cornell University, where I um, where I lucked out into the the first of many really really wonderful mentors, and and began working on bats. And uh, nobody was really surprised that out of the fourteen hundred species of bats that that I picked the, the three vampire bats to work on. So I wrote a lot of. Um, papers, uh, uh, scientific papers, um, you know, peer-reviewed things uh, in, in journals, uh, wrote some, uh, did some book chapters. And, and I was looking at, 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 at locomotion in these animals that didn't have anything to do with, um, uh, with flight. And that's because they're really neat, that, that, that they run around on the ground like little spiders. And, and so not a lot of work had been done on two of the three vampire bats and, and really not much work at all had been done on, on the sort of quadrupedal locomotion that they exhibited. So, uh, so I sort of became a, I guess, a, an expert on, on vampire bats from there years later, I got the opportunity to, to, um, to write my first nonfiction book. And, and that's because I, once again, I, I lucked out and, 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 and fell in with a, with a wonderful literary agent. Um, and, so my first book was about blood feeding creatures and and the first half of the book was my work uh, on on vampire bats that I did with my wife and my coworkers and and um at most of the stuff that I did at Cornell uh, but I was also lucky at the time and a lot of people were unlucky because what was relevant in and was were things like bed bugs and 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 ticks uh, so I got to write a lot about those uh from there um you know I I sort of found a niche that would allow me to take um, strange, misunderstood topics, complex scientific topics, put a zoological slant on them, uh, and and get rid of the jargon, and and present them in an entertaining way and and and, and humorous when you, you know when when I, when I was able to get humor in. You know, the, the next book I wrote was about cannibalism, so you got to sort of pick your spots there. Um, and I looked at 
at at these phenomena, blood feeding and, and then cannibalism throughout the animal kingdom, and then moved into how uh, relevant they were to humans and 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 things like human medicine and um and 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 history of medicine. That very that was always very interesting to me. So after those books came out. Uh, and cannibalism did really well. Um, cannibalism, a perfectly natural history. My my editor at Algonquin and my agent Julian McKenzie suggested that I, that I look for something a little bit more mainstream than 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 blood feeding or or, mm-hmm. or cannibalism. <laughs> and so uh, so they they gave me a list, and on that list was the heart. And I thought I'm, I you know initially I, I thought mm, nah, not not weird enough. Is there is there really a book in here that I want to write? And and they said well well take a look. Um, and when I did the initial research, I found out that there, there, there certainly was enough interesting material, historical material, weird examples, um, uh, you know, that same sort of zoological bent that I put into the previous books I could do here. Um, and, and, and it actually even became more relevant because, you know, I'd like to have a dollar for every time I got asked a question that was sort of along the lines of, I mean, you've been studying vampire bats for 20 years. How does that help my grandmother survive? Um, but when I worked on the heart, I, the, the, the examples in the animal kingdom that I chose for, and it's certainly, it's not an encyclopedia and it's not a textbook, were, were, were interesting, not only because these creatures had cool circulatory systems, but because they were work researchers who were doing work on these animals. And we're talking about things like, you know, this horrible invasive species, Burmese pythons that are overrunning the Everglades, using creatures like these to learn more about uh, about our hearts and how to improve um, technology and, 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 and treatment of, of, of humans. And that to me was a big surprise. So of, of course, I, I steered the book in, in that direction. You definitely are keeping a style. Uh, heart is also connected with blood. Yeah. Um, it, it, it was a surprise that, that there was so much interesting stuff in there that, that, um, that hadn't been really written about in the way that I wanted to, to, uh, to approach it. You know, the stories that I tell, in this book, a lot of them have to do with improving your, you know, improving your heart health, my reader's heart health. But I do it in ways that are that I think are entertaining and 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 sometimes funny and uh, and and are repeatable, sort of at the dinner table, not because they're gross, although some of them are, um, but because they're uh, they're unique. And that, you know, I, I've been really lucky to be able to sort of take this unique. Um, uh, a, a approach to writing that that puts me right directly in the middle of you know on one side it's all of this really academic work out there that that only experts would read and on the other side there's a lot of sensationalized garbage out there and and um and I, I sort of set my 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 sights on 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 using my zoology background um, and my con- connections at places like the Museum of Natural History and and other museums. Um, to tell these neat stories in in ways that 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 I think haven't been taught uh, haven't really been told before. And before we get into nitty gritty of your book, Pump, um, you mentioned that you are the first generation academic. Is that right? Yes. And maybe you have some advice, or what would you say to students in your position? Oh, uh, find great mentors. You need to find people that uh, that you can trust. 
And, um, and when you find them, uh, don't let them go. Uh, I'm talking about, uh, about folks who are, who are absolutely looking out for your, uh, you know, to, to benefit your, to, to grow you as a person, to, 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 to grow you as a, um, as a, um, as a student, uh, to, to, to teach you how to become an educator, to teach you how to become a scientist or, or whatever the profession happens to be. Um, but, but I don't think there's anything more important, uh, than, than great mentors. And, you know, I've, I've really, really been lucky, you know, you know, I, I never really considered myself to be the smartest kid on the block, but I think that everybody has a knack for something. And my knack was always for connecting with, uh, an incredible array of, uh, of people who, who, who mentored me and, you know, in, in, in so many ways, you know, and, and there's a long, long list and, and, I never, uh, I, you know, I never get tired of, of, of thanking them and, you know, and trying to be a good mentor myself as, as well, of course. So your latest book is Pump, A Natural History of the Heart. Can you tell us how did you go about putting it together? Um, well, as, as I mentioned earlier, I, I um, you know, I start off in the animal kingdom and I move through, you know, this book starts off with the largest heart on, on, that on the planet and that's the blue whale heart and uh, and and how the nine of these blue whales died on the ice up in newfoundland in 2014 and, and that that's tragic uh, but we didn't really know a whole lot about blue whale hearts because these animals when they die would sink um so in the old whaling days the the right whales were the whales that when you threw a harpoon in them would that you know they'd float that these were sort of the wrong whales because when you threw a harpoon in them they'd sink um, and so it, it, my friends at the Royal Ontario Museum, Mark Ingstrom and Burton Lim and Jackie Miller, you know, they'd, they'd heard questions from, uh, from people that, from visitors at, at, to the Royal Ontario Museum, like, what's the largest heart in the world? Uh, blue whale heart. How big is it? Uh, it's the size of a sedan. Uh, but they really didn't know. And when they got a chance to recover one of these hearts, because a couple of these whales did not sink, they were held up on the ice and they came ashore in these small fishing villages and, and, and they sent what was, you know, it was a half scientific team and, 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 and half construction crew because in order to get access to these hearts, you know, there was, for example, there were four people inside this whale pushing the heart out between the ribs mm. um, and they had to move this thing with, uh, with heavy equipment. So that's where I start this book and then move through how they preserved it and, and how they're learning so many things about this heart. That, that, that they had no idea. You know, you figure this is a mammal heart. It's, uh, it's probably been really you know, well documented. No, there are blood vessels that they found on this thing that they, they still don't know what they are. Um, so the learning curve is really steep. And, and I try to get that, that point across about, you know, what science is and the approach that these folks took to it. Uh, and from there, I moved through the animal kingdom, looking at how hearts first evolved, how they're very, very different in animals that don't have backbones in vertebrates there, there's an, a you know there's a, a wide variety of different types of of pumping mechanisms that send the liquid around the body which is what what hearts do and and this liquid is carrying oxygen and carbon dioxide and it's carrying nutrients and waste products and and there's a lot of variation if you don't have a backbone once you have a backbone and then i so i move into the 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 vertebrates in in this next section of the book 
Um, th- then, then there's a lot of similarity because the, you know, the idea here is that, that all of those vertebrate hearts evolved from a common ancestor, whereas it, the invertebrates, that just wasn't the case. You know, that, that they, we believe that hearts and circulatory systems in things like, you know, crabs and lobsters and insects uh, evolved many times, many times. Not the case when you, when you get into the, the vertebrates. Um, so then I moved through that, the, the vertebrate hearts and eventually wind up with the human heart. Uh, and here is where you run into to what to me were interesting problems because our, our lack of knowledge about the heart uh, w- was, was substantial and extremely long lasting. And so the reasons behind that, why did, you know, why did, uh, the, why did Western medicine hit a brick wall for 1500 years? To me, that was wildly interesting. And so I used the heart and what we knew and really didn't know about it as an example. Um, and then from there into the improvements that were made, you know, cardiac catheterization, that story is insane. Um, the, in, in 1928, this, this, this German is, is catheterizing himself. Um, and, you know, and there were people trying to pull the catheter out because they don't want him to do this. And he's, you know, getting them back of this, uh, you know, uh, fluoroscope to, to take pictures of this, to prove that he's got this catheter. He can deliver medicine directly to the heart without, without cracking the chest open. You know, the, I couldn't write a fictional story that was, you know, that was more interesting than that. And then into, into improvements and, and, and cardiac medicine in the future. And, and the future is, you know, mm. that's also got some really, really intriguing uh, angles to it. So let's start with a bit of physiology uh, of the heart. So can you tell us what exact functions does the heart perform? And are they all the same across uh, different creatures? Okay, so when if if i were to if i were to call an insect heart if i were to call, if, if i were to go up to a cardiologist or a, or a cardiac surgeon and say you know uh, this is a heart this little thing and the, these little tiny pumps in this insect he would it, you know he'd probably laugh at me these are not in there in 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 those ways they're, they're really not sort of like card carrying hearts uh, but but to me a heart is a, a muscular pump that sends fluid around the body in order to pick up and drop off substances like oxygen and carbon dioxide and nutrients and waste. And, and there are a variety of ways to do this. Um, as I said, there's a lot of similarity in how the, um, how vertebrates do it. Uh, but, but when you get into the invertebrates, it's, uh, you know, all bets are off. Is it necessarily one heart per creature or can there be more? No. Um, for example, the squid have three hearts. Uh, they have two hearts that that uh, that pump blood to their gills, and another heart, a systemic heart that pumps blood to their to the body after the blood has picked up oxygen in the gills. So there's a variety of you know there, there are animals with multiple hearts. That's the that's the one that comes to mind. Um, but once again, if you were to call these structures, uh, you know, if you were to be, if you were talking to a to a, to a cardiologist, that he might have different specifications for what he calls a heart. Uh, it has to have a specific lining. The endothelial lining of the, of the heart has to be, um, uh, has to be a certain, um, you know, it has to look a certain way. Uh, otherwise he's not considering that to be a heart. So, you know, there's a gray area there, but, um, you know, it was kind of like cannibalism. Some people considered if you, 
you know, if you walked up and, and found, uh, if, if you were an animal that, that sort of wandered over and found the, the, the body of, of, of a creature in the same species and you ate it, you know, to them, that's scavenging. You know, to me, that's still cannibalism as long as it's the same. So there's some, um, you know, it depends on who you talk to. But um, so I, I guess that's about it. So you already mentioned some um, some things about evolutionary history of the heart. So mm-hmm. can I just clarify, are they all hearts that are present nowadays equally evolved, aren't they? So how do we distinguish what came first in the terms of evolution of the heart? Well, I mean, you can look at the fossil record and you see creatures that are preserved in the fossil record that are very, very much like the like, like some of the creatures that you see today. And and some of them, some of these are so finely detailed. Some of the fossils that that come out of places like China are, you know, they're over a half a billion years old. And you can literally see circulatory systems in them. Um, so we have a good idea of what of, of what these structures look like. A long time ago, by looking at at animals that that are related to those uh, ancient creatures, uh, and also the fossil record as well. And what are the most interesting and curious aspects of harsh physiology to you? Oh boy, um, <laughs> that's a long <laughs> list. I guess the the thing that comes to mind is, and the thing that surprised me the most, is the similarity between. Um, between, say, the heart of a zebrafish. And, and, and if you ever kept an aquarium, a tropical aquarium, you've probably had these little guys in there. They're about an inch long, and they have these um, horizontal black and white stripes, and they're beautiful little fish. Uh, but they're, they are now, the in the 21st century, they've become the guinea pigs of, uh, of the 20th century. And, and that's because they have, you know, their genetics are about 72% similar to humans. And so what we're discovering by, by examining zebrafish hearts um, is, is, is extremely relevant to what we're trying to do to improve cardiac medicine. So for example, they just discovered in the zebrafish a cell that they did not know existed uh, in them. Um, and it is a, a, it's a type of glial cell. Um, um, it's think of glial cells they're part of the nervous system, but they're, they're not neurons. The neurons are the superstars of the nervous system and glial cells are the support team. And, and this is a cell that they've never, they never discovered it, that this is a brand new cell. And they think that it's involved in generating heartbeat, um, inside the heart. And lo and behold, they're now able to, because they found them in these zebrafish, they've now discovered that they exist in humans. So this to me is, you know, this is the thing that sort of jumps out at me as, as, as really intriguing about, um, uh, about cardiac physiology is what we're learning from, from creatures that, um, that you wouldn't necessarily think would be able to tell us a lot about how to improve our, our, our how to improve medicine, for example. Yes, pythons. for sure. This is super fascinating. Yeah, pythons are another example. I mean, who, who knew that the million pythons that are overrunning the Everglades have, have got hearts that are, you know, after they have a meal, they'll, they grow 40% in size. When we think of, uh, of, of enlarged hearts, that's a bad thing. Um, but, but this is healthy heart growth. And, and what is it about the, um, about what is it that pythons have that enables their hearts to grow 
in a healthy manner uh, after they've eaten the meal. And, and this is the type of thing that, you know, we're, there are researchers now who are trying to apply this to instances where, let's say you have, um, let, let's, say, let's say you have serious heart problems and you can't, you can't undertake the, the exercise regimen that you would normally take if you were to have a heart attack. Um, and, and, and you want to exercise because that's going to strengthen your heart. But what if your heart is so weak that you can't exercise? Is there something that we can give you that would promote healthy heart growth? Well, it's taking place in, 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 in Burmese pythons. Um, so maybe we can use that, those substances uh, to promote healthy heart growth uh, in, in people who just can't, uh, can't exercise. That to me is the, you know, that was, th that's incredibly fascinating. And so, uh, so the learning curve, when I wrote this book was, you know, wildly steep, but but what I found were, were so many interesting stories and, and so many that, that I thought were, were, were relevant um, to, 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 to my readers. So what kind of diseases can afflict uh, the heart? Um, huh. Well, I mean, the, the, the one that everybody talks about is, is you know, atherosclerosis. And, and the, you, the, the heart is... It, it's mostly muscle tissue. There's connective tissue there. There's sort of sort of a framework of connective tissue, like a, almost like a skeleton for the for the muscle to to attach itself to. But but cardiac muscle is um, is just like any other cell. It requires oxygen and and it, and it produces waste products which it needs to get rid of. It 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 also produces carbon dioxide. The cells do, uh, and that needs to be gotten rid of. Um, and um, and you got to bring nutrients in to to feed it. So. So not only is the heart a pump that pumps blood to the rest of the body, but but the heart needs to be supplied itself. Uh, and and in order to do that, there are a number of uh, of coronary vessels that 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 literally come off of the heart and supply the heart itself. So rather than ninety, rather than one hundred percent of the blood coming out of the heart going to the body, let, let's say, and I'm just picking this number, let's say ninety eight percent of it does, and two percent of it goes to the heart itself. It might be more than that. Um, but in any event, those vessels are really small. Those coronary vessels are really small and they have a tendency to get clogged up. Um, or something that can happen is that there, there can be a blood clot that, that gets stuck that blocks those vessels. And when that occurs, when, when you cut off blood flow, and let's say that there were four of these coronary arteries and they're each supplying different regions of the heart. When you block that vessel, then the the tissue, the cells that are downstream of that blockage, and I'm talking about cardiac muscle cells, are going to starve, and eventually they're going to die. And the and the horrible thing is that when they, even if you were to 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 get rid of the blockage, to 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 you know get the blood flowing again to that region, that if that if if those cells are damaged, then when they grow back, they don't grow back as healthy, contractile functioning cardiac muscle cells, you can think of them as scar tissue. They don't work. They don't contract. So this is a huge, huge problem. Uh, and, you know, and so, so that, so I, I mean, there's a, there's a list of problems that you have with the heart from conduction problems, like the electrical, you know, think of it as a short circuit in your heart so that, so that the muscles don't get, don't get the signal to, uh, to contract in a, synchronously in a you know in a manner that's repeatable 
you know, hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands and millions of times over a lifetime. So, so that's a that's a whole other story. But you know, going back to this idea of a heart being damaged by 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 blood flow being cut off. If you look, if you go back and look at that zebrafish, right? You can snip off seven. You can snip off twenty percent of its heart. Mm. Snip it off, and that heart will grow back to be completely functional. Now, what is it about the zebrafish heart that allows it to heal itself, and the human heart can't do that? So this is where you know th- this to me is the fascinating thing. You know, and and, and you there are. There, there are a lot of researchers who are trying to figure this out. Uh, you know, so so that's just one example of um, uh, of a very very common disease, and 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 the reason this takes place is are, are things like diet and lack of exercise and 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 you know genetics as well. Um, but how we're trying to approach it in in very very new ways, you know, and, and up till recently it's just been well we're going to replace that vessel we're. You know, so they'll take a vessel off of your leg or your your arm, and um, and they'll do a bypass surgery. Uh, well, in the future, they may not have to do that. So um, this, to me, is what's exciting. Okay, so let's look at some of the medical discoveries and developments uh, over history. So, which ones do you find most exciting? Well, the ones that I talk about are are, are things like the stethoscope, which I, I think they did a they did a poll of the of of, of you know the medical instrument that that makes you most trust a, a, a physician when you see him, and 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 this is still the stethoscope, and and mm. this is something that was invented in 1816 by a Frenchman by the name of Rene Lanake, and he was living in Paris um, when there was a horrible outbreak of, of tuberculosis, and and back in those days they called it consumption because it consumed this it was this disease that seemed to consume you from from within. Um, and so he, the legend has it is that he was walking through, uh, through a, a square and he saw two kids playing and one of them had a stick and he was holding it up to his ear and the other kid was tapping the, the, the far end of the stick. And he just got the idea that you, that, it, it, you know, the, the way to examine people back in those days was you just would put your ear to their chest. And, and this was problematic because of things like, you know, uh, fleas and uh, unsanitary conditions and then there was the whole idea of a of a male doctor putting his his head on a uh, you know uh, against the breast of a of a of a lady um and and this was sort of frowned upon so he thought in terms of um using an instrument and he didn't use a stick he something more like a, a straw enlarge that by 10 times and that he could put his ear against and, and, and put that to the, uh, to the chest of his patients and, and how they were first using it was to detect, uh, accumulations of liquid, um, in the lungs, uh, because of, uh, of, of tuberculosis, but it was also used to, to, and has been used to listen to heart sounds. And, and it was just one more, tool that 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 doctors could use to get sort of a standard measurement of a normal heartbeat and then compare it to um to the heartbeat of folks who were suffering from uh, from uh, various maladies and so it became a very very important and still is uh instrument so i talk about that um 
I talk about uh, about cardiac catheterization, which is a <laughs> which is a crazy story. Um, so yeah, uh, I mean, there's there's a there's a list of neat of neat instruments and um, that I go through, as well as, uh, as as procedures like like transplants, and and I spend quite a bit of time looking at uh, at, at 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 a transplant. You know, the first heart transplant was in 1967. The first artificial heart was in 1982. Both of these were problematic for various reasons that I talk about, not enough donor hearts being one, uh, and, and the, and the mechanical hearts were, were always uh, sort of going to be temporary. Uh, but in 1984, Leonard Bailey transplanted the heart of a, uh, of a baboon, an infant baboon into a deathly ill child, newborn who became known as baby Fay, and got a tremendous amount of media coverage there. And, and, um, long story short, Baby Faye died right at around three weeks, but but not because she re, not because her body rejected that heart. She died for other reasons. She was, as I said, desperately ill. So that was a tragedy. But what it did, because of the media coverage, it it led to an explosion in research on things like transplants in newborns. And and Leonard Bailey never had to do another baboon to human transplant again because the media. Uh, and the and the coverage that that he received, uh, then donations started to come in when when people lost their 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 infants, they would donate their hearts. And 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 meanwhile, other researchers looked for ways to approach the the cardiac disease that baby Faye had and other similar type diseases of newborns, and ways to approach curing them without without transplants. So there was this what started out as a tragedy turned into just all sorts of, uh, of improvements and, and, and techniques and, and, and new methodologies. So I tell that story as well. And, uh, you know, I just, I was fascinated by it. Yes, for sure. And it's one of those aha moments for science and the development of it just led to so much uh, good, isn't it? Uh, later on. Oh, absolutely. So as in those days, today as well, we usually have sort of lack of uh, donor hearts available mm-hmm. to all of the people. So there are some developments to start using perhaps humanized animal hearts. So can you tell us a little bit uh, about these technologies? Yeah, I mean, um, right now, there, in, there, there, just recently in the news, there's been a lot about uh, about transplanting animal organs into humans, and and the one that 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 came up recently um, is the transplantation of a, of a kidney in, into some into a woman who was literally brain dead and, and being kept alive, um, and and it was a pig kidney, and the, and that was a strain of pigs that had been that genetically adjusted in a sense by this sort of CRISPR technology that is now. Uh, that that has now become really popular, where you can go in and cut out parts of the a genetic code that would, for example, produce substances in that pig that and the pig's heart that your body would um, would, would would reject. So that so so they're editing these things out, and what they produced were were was a, was a kidney in this instance uh, that had been that 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 had been. Um, 
gone through these procedures in these pigs to, to produce a, a kidney that would not be rejected. And it wasn't. So, so that's certainly one aspect of, uh, of transplantation in the future is, is to use genetically modified pigs and their hearts are very similar to humans. They would never use chimpanzee hearts or baboon hearts because they, they don't really, you know, they don't produce a lot of offspring, whereas pigs would produce more hearts. The, the, there's, there are very, very different ways that, that researchers are, are looking to approach the problem of not enough donor hearts. And I was lucky enough to, to, to go up to, uh, to Harvard uh, and, and go into the laboratory of Dr. Harold Ott. And, and what he is doing is, is something very, very different. What he's saying is, if you, if, if you pass away and you're going to donate your heart, your, excuse me, if you pass away and you're going to donate your body to science, but instead of doing that, donate your heart to a facility. And this facility will take your heart after you pass away. And, and, and he's, doing, he's doing this now with, uh, with non-human hearts. Literally take this heart. Now, if I were to take that heart and put it into somebody, transplant it into them, it, it, it would have to be the right tissue type. It would have to be the right blood type. These are sort of the problems that you run into with transplants uh, in that, you know, it's not it's not like every heart can go into every person. You know, the, the, you know a donor heart doesn't necessarily going to go into this recipient. What he's doing is he's taking these cadaver hearts and then running them through a process that is literally a substance that's dripping through the heart like a detergent. And instead of cleaning like a detergent would do, this detergent is uh, is literally washing away all of the cells in the heart that your body would reject if you put that heart into into a person. Um, And what's left is connective tissue. What's left is mostly collagen. And and you do not react. The human body does not react. your, Your immune system does not reject collagen like it would um, muscle cells and muscle tissue. So what he's left with is this ghostly white skeleton of a heart, a model of, as it were, a scaffold. And now what he wants to do is let's say that you're going to get a heart transplant. So, and you, so you're going to be the recipient. He takes a sample from your skin. So he's just, he's not doing any kind of, you know, biopsy where they have to go in deep. He's taking a skin sample. And from that skin sample, he's taking cells um, called fibroblasts. And the technology now exists to turn those fibroblasts, normal skin cells, into stem cells. And stem cells, as, as you know, uh, literally uh, can, can, can turn into any type of cell in the body depending on how the body stimulates them. Well, we can also now take stem cells and stimulate them to become muscle cells or or, or kidney cells. So, or, so that technology exists. So what he wants to do is take these recipient cells from this, this eventually who's going to be a, a cardiac recipient, um, take them, convert them into, take these fibroblasts, convert them into stem cells, convert the stem cells into cardiac muscle cells, then culture those cells, grow them, and eventually put them back onto that scaffold and to literally grow a heart to order for the recipient that is made up of his own cells with a framework of, 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 of connective tissue and then install that, transplant that into someone's body. So I was completely, 
<laughs> I was completely blown away by this, uh, and this by this technology. I said, so so how long do you think this is going to take before before this is this this happens regularly? He says within ten years, within ten years. I love it when the science fiction starting to sound like science reality. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, I could go on. There, there were there were other examples in other laboratories that I visited that that would just just blew my mind when I when I saw what was going on, and and you know you you mentioned earlier about why you know how the pandemic has affected me. It, you know you can't really go into those laboratories anymore. You can't make those visits. Uh, so it's a, so it's a lot different if you're doing an interview. Uh, but via Zoom, for example, than being able to go into the lab and see those specimens and 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 talk to these guys face to face, and that's what I was able to do for for Pump. And that's brilliant that you bring all of these insights uh, to your audience. Um, yeah, um, I, I I just I enjoy writing it, and I've always enjoyed teaching and and getting material across to to people that is that that's helpful and in a way that's not full of jargon and, you know, I'm not showing off big, you know, how many big words I know. I'm, I'm trying to get information across that I think is important in a, in an entertaining way. And, and, and in a way that, uh, you know, was it the wall street journal said that, uh, that, that I, I've got a lot of dad humor, dad jokes. In my <laughs> books. So, <laughs> I, so I asked my son and I said, is that bad? He goes, no, dad, that's okay. There, that's fine. It's in vogue now. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> so now thinking about all of these uh, developments, is there anything that you would want to discover about the heart next? Oh, next. Mm, boy. Um, you know, I, I think I've covered the examples that I, I think we, we need to keep following up on, on the, um, some of the innovations that, that animal hearts have to uh, to improve our own outlook and so so I think that's important uh, so so um and and I'm I, I'm and then I'm a, you know I'm an animal lover I'm a zoologist and and I realize that there are people who are sensitive to um, to the use of animals uh, but um, but they play an important role in in the development of things like drugs and and these technologies that we're that we're trying to develop now and and so I just think that um, there's a lot to learn from, from uh, as far as the heart and circulatory system goes. That there's a lot to learn from from nature uh, that 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 w- will benefit humans if we keep going on the, on on those routes. And also, this uh, scaffold, uh, collagen scaffold of the heart that you mentioned. Of course, you you require a donor in this case. Mm-hmm. But do you think that technology can improve to, for us to be able to three D print this scaffold? And that we can use maybe on the uh, long haul mm-hmm. space travel if we want to <laughs> sure. provide ourselves with new yeah. organs. Oh, absolutely! There are researchers. There's a researcher um, who I didn't really get to work on this because I didn't find out about it until after the book was written. But there are researchers in Israel who are who are 3D printing hearts, and and so yes, they are taking that um, that tact uh, as well. Um, but but I mean, what Dr. Ott is doing is he's using cadaver hearts. These are not people who are, you know, who are alive and are donating their heart or, or, or donating a kidney or something like that. You know, these are people who are deceased that would presumably donate their hearts after they died. Um, just to sort of clear that up. 
So now if we zoom out and think about the bigger picture, so in what ways are we thinking about the physiology of the heart, but also heart transplantation are being shaped by the economic, political, mm. or even social forces of our day? Huh, that, that, that's, a, that's another really, really good question. I, I think there's a real disconnect with regard to accessibility to, to things like uh, healthy, affordable food, medical care, medical insurance, um, you know, access to aftercare, uh, healthy living conditions. Uh, you know, that, that is certainly problematic. Uh, that, 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 is, that is a real problem. Uh, and, and I think it is one that is uh, that, that needs to be addressed um, just it's it is as important as uh, as developing new technologies, because if we can't get these new technologies uh, and medications out to everyone, uh, then then I, then I think, you know, in, in part, at least we've we, we failed. So, yes, I, I, I do believe that 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 this is a. Uh, that this is something that is very, very important. That this disconnect between uh, those who who have access to to, to things like great medical care uh, and those who don't, um, and those who who are eating unhealthy food uh, and, and because they can't afford healthy food or or because they don't they don't know, um, you know they they haven't been, they have not been shown what they can do to improve. Um, to, to improve their diets, for example, um, and they have a distrust of science, so they have a distrust of of government. And this is these are horrible problems. Yes, for sure. And as we learn more and more that cardiovascular health is so important to so many systems, isn't it? For for the brain, for example, as well. Oh, absolutely. You know, when when I taught and and I just I took an early retirement a, a year ago, so now I'm writing full time. And, and working as a researcher at, at, at the American Museum of Natural History. But, but I'd like to have a dollar for every time I told my students that you cannot look at, 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 an, at an organ system like the, 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 the circulatory system. You can't look at it like a book chapter. And unfortunately, that's how these things are presented. Because, you know, it's not like you can just read up about this, study it, and then spit it out on a test and then move on. And now let's look at the respiratory system and sort of forget the circuit. No, these things are intimately tied together. And, and, and that is the way to look at these systems. That is the way to look at organs. You know, the, without, the, without the, the circulatory system, the brain is not going to work. Without the brain, the, the, then the circulatory system is not going to work. And, and there's an incredibly close tie-in between the, the respiratory system and the heart. Um, and, and I could go on and on. So the way, and, and I really try to, to, uh, to punch this home in, in this book is, is the way to look at the, at the human body is, is not as a, you know, not as a chapters in a book, uh, but in interrelationships between organs, between organ systems. Um, I, I think that's an important thing for, for everybody to learn. And, and, and the other, while I'm, while I'm on this rant, is that we've got to stop thinking about our hearts, our lungs, our digestive systems as being somehow the pinnacle, of the, the you know the 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 end all, the be all, the the greatest. It, not no, not at all. Um, 
all of these systems, whether you're looking at the multiple hearts that are found uh, in an insect or you're looking at the complexities of the, of the human heart, they all get the job done. They are all functionally equivalent. Um, and, and so to look at, uh, at, a, at an insect heart uh, as, uh, as, as being somehow inferior to the human heart, I think we're doing ourselves a disservice. We need to, to get away from that whole idea uh, of uh, ours is best. Um, and this is just a continuation of, 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 of a line of thought that, that existed for a long, long time. And we've all seen these pictures of, you know, here's like five different, uh, you know, human ancestors. And they're all lined up and they all seem to be on a march to become a modern human. You know, the march of progress. Well, that, that's just not the way that scientists think that, 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 that things work anymore. And, and so... Now, these are the types of realizations that I try to get across in a in a in an entertaining manner in in, in my books. And you know, it doesn't matter if you're looking at uh, at Dark Banquet, the book on blood feeding, or cannibalism, perfectly natural history, or or Pump, uh, a natural history of the heart. It, you know, the message is in there uh, in all of them. So, what kind of discoveries along your journey to writing your book Pump surprised you the most? Oh. I, the one that jumps out at me is that, um, you know, I was investigating why we have these, uh, why, why we, when we think of the heart, we think about, uh, you know, emotion and, and, and intellect, and it's the seat of the soul. And so I, so I looked at where, where that came from, you know, the, the, the origins of this idea of, quote, cardiocentrism, end quote. Um, and, and while I was doing that, to make a long story short there, it, you know, when I was working on a book about cannibalism, I, I wondered wh why we have a knee-jerk reaction to that word. And, and when I did that research, I was going to name the chapter "Blame It on the Ancient Greeks," um, and that changed. Um, but when I looked, when I went to look at why we have the in the West, at least, we have these uh, feelings about uh, that the, that the heart is tied to emotions and, and memory and, and intellect and, and the soul. I was good, I could have named that chapter "Blame It on the Ancient Egyptians," and you know, and and these are people who, who really put a lot of, um, you know, they, they thought a great deal about, about the heart. <laughs> they thought very little about the, about the brain. The, in the, if they were mummifying you, they would pull the brain out of your head with a, with a hook and, and throw it mm. away. And the heart though was a different matter. The heart had to be preserved because it was going to be weighed in the afterlife against the feather of Mott, this goddess, um, and to determine whether you were going to have a good time in the afterlife or, or, or not. Um, but at the same time, so, so this was adopted by the Greeks who, who really um, held Egyptian medical information in high esteem, passed on to the Romans. Now, at the same time, the, the, um, the, the artists are looking at this and the Egyptians are saying the heart is the center of everything. So that gets passed on to the Greeks. That gets passed on to the Romans. Now, now the artists are picking that up and they're looking at it and going, Oh, all right, well then, you know, so, so their, their paintings and, and their poems and, and, and their stories are all centered around the heart. Um, and so, so I thought that was really, really intriguing. Um, but to get away from that, The thing that surprised me the most was that a, Ger a German, excuse me, was that a Roman physician in the second century picked up on what he'd learned from the Greeks, who picked up on what they'd learned from the Egyptians, and he wrote about three million words. This was a this was Galen, and 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 Galen's work 
much of it was wrong. You know, he believed, for example, that there were, uh, you know, that that arteries carried air, uh, and and that uh, that that veins carried blood, and that you had these four humors, and that, that had to be you had to maintain the balance of these substances in your body, and that would make you healthy, which is why they bled you forever. You know, when you hear about people bleeding or adding leech, put a leech on a guy, uh, that was to balance one of the four humors, which is blood. The problem is, is that when Rome fell. Galen's work, and it was about three million words, was not initially translated into Latin, which was the uh, the language of uh, scholarship, at, at least in the West. Uh, and it sat. And in the Middle Ages, when it was translated, it was translated by Syrian Christians. And when they did this translation, they sort of interpreted that Galen was a monotheist. He was not a Christian, but he was a monotheist. And they added their Christian slant to Galen's translations. And when the church read these translations, which finally got translated into Latin, they fell in love with Galen. And so they decreed that Galen's writings were divinely inspired and that nobody could do anything um, counter to what um, was written by Galen. So for 1500 years, medicine came to a halt. Uh, Mm. and, And so this to me was one of the big surprises and just, you know, this whole idea that is, you know, and it's so relevant nowadays about uh, any type of a lockstep following of something that is not investigated is going to lead to trouble. Um, And and, and we see that today. Uh, So so to me, that was one of the biggies. uh, You know, that was one of the most interesting things that I found while I was researching this book and, and I got to write about. So now circling back to the beginning of our conversation when you introduced the whale heart, I was just wondering how much formaldehyde does it need for preservation? <laughs> oh, so it, yeah, I talk about that and and how when we're in a lab situation, we're always worried about getting a little bit of uh, a, a, a formalin, which is the di- dilute version of formaldehyde splashed on us. Um, and, you know, how... Uh, you know, you freak out when you get this stuff on you. Oh my God, it's a carcinogen. Uh, Got to go wash up, and that's great. But but these guys, but these guys, when they were doing when they were doing the initial preservation, and and this took five years total. Um, wow. They were using, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of gallons of formalin. So they weren't worried about it getting splashed on them. They were worried about falling into a vat of it. Um. And then after this, after it was preserved, then they wound up sending it over to Germany where it was plastinated. And if you've ever seen the uh, the, um, the bodies exhibit and different exhibits that, that w- w- with plastinated specimens, it's, you know, it's like, a, you know, th- there'll be a specimen of a, of, a, of a guy dribbling a basketball. And, uh, you know, he looks perfectly normal, except he has no skin and he's made of plastic and all you can see is his muscles and and. and and, and circulatory system. That's this plastination process. So they plastinated this 385 pound blue whale heart. Um, and it is absolutely stunning. It's absolutely stunning. And it's now, it's on display now at the Royal Ontario Museum in, uh, in Toronto. <laughs> One of the things they found out about it is, is a, that they realized is a whole lot smaller than they thought it was going to be. That was a big, big surprise. So they wondered, you know, why is it, why is this thing not 
much larger than it is. And what they figured out was is that um, th- that so if you were to look at a hummingbird, right, and uh, um, the heart of a hummingbird, if if you had a you know the whale weighed ninety tons, if you had a ninety ton hummingbird, it would have a heart that was eight times larger than the blue whale heart, eight times. And they 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 wondered why is this so and. But they came to the conclusion, and, and these are my friends, Eric, um, excuse me, Mark Ingstrom and, and Burton Lim and, and, and Jackie Miller up at the ROM, was that hummingbird wings beat at about 80 times per second. And, and in order to do that, their heart beats at a maximum at, at 1,260 beats per minute. And that's probably about the limit that a heart can beat. It has to fill, it has to empty, the heart has to contract, it has to empty. So the only other way to get more blood to the muscles of the wings, and that's what you really need to do here if you're beating your, your wings at 80 times per second, is to have a larger heart. So every time it pumps, you're sending more blood to those muscles and, and at an incredibly high rate. Now, whales don't need that. You know, when they're on a, a, you know, when they're on a dive, maybe their heart is beating two or three times per minute. So they don't have those those demands, those metabolic demands for oxygen and nutrients that something like a, uh, like a hummingbird or, 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 a, a you know, a, a little shrew, a little mousy looking insectivore w- would have. So that, that to me was once again, that throughout this book, the learning curve was wickedly steep as it was for these folks who, who finally got their hands on a blue whale heart. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project? Well, I've just turned in a, a, a work of fiction uh, and I'm really excited about it because it's, it's you know, I have three novels and they're, they're World War II techno thrillers, a little cryptozoology thrown in there. Um, but I've written a novel. It's my first solo novel and it's for middle, you know, upper middle graders uh, and it takes place during World War II. And, and so that is done and submitted. But right now I'm working, my nonfiction, uh, I'm working on a book about the natural history of teeth. So, and I'm finding that to be just as interesting. And, and, and you know, when you go into uh, the history of, of, uh, of dentistry, there is some real strange, uh, real strange stuff was going on. Mm. Um uh, and then teeth have, are, are, have always been wildly important uh, for people like paleontologists who are telling the story of life on this planet. Much of what we knew um, for a long, long time was based on on fossil teeth, which are uh, the most common vertebrate fossils by far. So that's what I'm working on now. And um, I, I expect that will be out in, in 2023. And where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book? Um, let's see. I have a website, Bill Shutt, B-I-L-L-S-C-H-U-T-T dot com. Um, I am also on Twitter at Bill Shutt Books, and I have a, a Facebook page, Bill Shutt Author. If you go on Amazon, there's a page there, uh, on Bill Shutt uh, Author, and, and, and also Goodreads as well. So I'm pretty easy to um, to get a hold of, and, and, and I welcome questions from, from listeners, and I always have. Uh, and my book is available. All of my books are available in any format uh, that, that that you want. And they're available everywhere you can buy books. Thank you so much for joining me today and for getting me really pumped up about the heart. Sorry <laughs> for this dad joke. 
<laughs> no problem. It's, it, it was a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you for having me on your show.